All right, so welcome to Mark's Movie Collection. This is uh, Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. Generally, generally bad movie nerd. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually be watching a movie that came out in 1985. All the way live, Kick It 85, and it's uh, it's written by a gentleman that you may have heard of by the name of John Hughes. No, it's not. Ha! Huh. It's directed by Joel Schumacher, and it's written by. Joel Schumacher and some other guy, Carl blah, 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 blah. But it's essentially the Don, the the Don Hughes, the John Hughes crew. It is essentially the Brat Pack, uh, all grown up, and it is starring. And I'm gonna read this in order of IMDb. It is starring Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, which is the first non-Hughes uh, alum, Hughes alum in this group, I guess, maybe. Uh, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Mayor Winningham, Martin Balsam, Andy McDowell, Joyce Van Patten, Jenny Wright, Blake Clark, Blake Clark, Blake Clark, John Cutler, Matthew Lawrence, Gina hiked. It's called St. Elmo's Fire. And it is, what do you do when you're out of college and you are struggling with adulthood? And this is um, essentially the, uh, the crippling ennui of the modern-day millennial. But uh, I think it's pretty universal for anyone who has gone to college, who has grown up, essentially. I've only seen this movie in parts. Uh, it's also been very many years ago. But I am I'm genuinely, truly, and honestly interested in seeing it again. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do that. See you on the other side. Okay. So. I watched St. Elmo's Fire. And... It was interesting. It was very interesting. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters. It um, You could call it a soap opera if it was serialized, but it's not. So, I'm not calling it that. I am, however, going to go through the cast of characters just so to, to make sure that we're on the same page and that I'm on the same page, right? Um, so we have Alec. Alec is played by Judd Nelson. And Alec works for a congressman, and he's trying to make some moves, uh, I guess, politically? Maybe, um, you know, career-wise. He's trying to make moves. Uh, Leslie is Alec's girlfriend, and she's ostensibly an artist and antique dealer of some type. They don't really they don't really go into it too hard, but there's like a montage where she is selling stuff, so seems reasonable, right? Kevin is um Leslie's played by Ali Sheedy, by the way. Kevin is played by Andrew McCarthy. And Kevin is like a writer. He's like a frustrated writer. He's really hasn't had a lot of 
luck and love recently, and he's, he's just having a tough time. He's a tough time. Jules is played by Demi Moore, and she is some type of office person, but she is glam as fuck. She drives a Jeep. She has like a pink-ass apartment with a huge mural of um, Billy Idol, I believe. I mean, that looks like Billy Idol and me. I don't, I don't think they go into it, but if that were my apartment and someone were to ask me why, who is that guy and why is he on your wall, I would say that's Billy Idol and get the net. So, she's very, very, very glam, but also drugs, um, which is rough, you know? Kirby. Kirby is played by Emilio. Emilio! Love Kirby. Love Emilio. Uh, Emilio Estevez. And Kirby is pre-law. I guess, where he's just graduated and he's going into law school, right? Because law school is kind of like a graduate school. You know, you get your JD and, and all that stuff. Um, but right now he's working at the bar, I guess, to pay for stuff, really, because um, things are expensive. I'll get into that in a second. Wendy is uh, played by Mayor uh, Wellingham. Mayor Wellingham. And I'm having a hard time reading my notes. I did these notes hours ago. It's been a long day, uh, but I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. And Wendy is a uh, is from an affluent family. She's kind of like a a social worker, and she's she's really trying to give back and and trying to do good things, um, irrespective of her position. Like it's not that she rejects being from an affluent family or or anything like that, but she's She's really just trying to strike it out on her own. And then we have Billy. Wonderful, wonderful, fantastic Billy. Played by wonderful, wonderful, fantastic Rob Lowe. What a guy. Right? As a... Oh, that was weird, a little bit static there. Um, but as Hannah Gatsby would say, what a guy. Billy's a little bit of a piece of shit. He is a saxophone-playing, job-losing son of a bitch uh, who has a wife and a child, but is, like, in a fucked-up marriage, and I think it's out of just, like, oh, she's pregnant, I better marry her, versus anything, and, I mean, the likelihood of him getting someone else pregnant is huge, because he fucks everything that moves. So, there's that. These are our cast of characters. I'm going to pause right now to make sure the sound is okay. Okay, so, funny story. You know how I said, hey, I'm going to pause here to check the sound. And, oh, it sounds fine? Or, or something thereabouts, I might have edited out the, uh, it sounds fine already, and I'm not going back to put it back in there. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't sound fine. I'm going through and, and kind of making the final pass and making sure I cut out any weird mouth sounds or whatever the case is and yeah it sounds kind of bad i apologize i think i had a, a low cut enabled somewhere and it sounds like i'm gonna 
maybe a, a weird like telephone call that's kind of good quality, kind of bad quality all at the same time. I would call it. Um, but it is what it is. This is it's in the it's it's in the can. It's done. It's done. What's done is done. I'm sorry. I apologize. However, uh, it does sound pretty okay on tiny computer speakers. So, yeah. I mean, hopefully it's hopefully you're still listening at this point. But yeah. So we have a maybe not diverse, but we have a a rich cast of characters per se. I I would say so. And these folks, these seven, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They have just recently graduated from college. Apparently, they all went to Georgetown. So they live in the D.C. metro area, which is very expensive. There's a lot going on in the D.C. metro area. It is the seat of the government for the United States as a whole. Um, but also it's a very important place on the eastern seaboard and things like that. A lot of people, a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of money. So they're all kind of living in this, you know, a lot of business. That's just kind of setting the stage. We, um, we see them walking from their graduation and then all of a sudden we are seeing a subset of them trying to find out uh, what happened with the car crash. So in this car crash, um, <laughs> this is tough because the way the movie is made, the themes, the conflicts are all tightly wound in with the plot. And every plot point matters and it's It'd be difficult for me to not just regurgitate the plot to you. Uh, I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try not to. I'm going to. I'm actually going to. This movie might be one of the more movies that I could talk longer about, but I'm going to try to talk less about it because it does a decent job of talking about itself. Um, you know how people, uh, programmers don't like writing documentation. Like, the code is documentation. Like, read my code. Like, I write for loops fucking boosted, but you should know that is, it's kind of what I'm talking about, but also not really. But I'm going to kind of go into, I guess, themes. I'm going to jump around. I'm de definitely 100% spoiler territory. If you have never seen this movie, me talking not about the plot is not going to fucking help you at all. Pause now. Find the movie. Watch it. I actually have it on a DVD. That worked. I shoved it in my PlayStation 3. I saw it on my couch. I'm now sitting on my bed using a uh, broadcast headset. That's why perhaps you may find me sounding a little different, maybe. But yeah, I'm just I'm using different stuff that normally isn't quite available to me. Because I just I like this bullshit. So anyway. We can start with Alec. Alec is 
this movie came out in 1985, uh, literally the year I was born. Anyway, this Alec is like a yuppie, I guess is the best, or uh, an attempt at a yuppie, right? Because he's not made it just yet. And then these kids are 22. So it's hilarious to me to look back at age 22 at this point. I'm 11 years past that. When I was 22, I was still in college. Um, But I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know anything. Uh, So the fact that the fact that these kids have it even relatively put together, at least a couple of them do, is is really fun. Um, In that this isn't necessarily the group of people that I went to college with, but it could be, right? Uh, I've heard tell of, of other people with these drives and desires. So Alec is kind of like a yuppie, and he works for a congressman, a Democratic congressman, right? Because he ran the Democratic um, society or, or school or, or whatever. And he, uh, he he's a bad person at, at the end of the day. He's not a good person. He objectifies women and not in big bad ways but in smaller insidious ways well well maybe in also big ways so like i said super duper spoilers i warned you twice alec and and leslie leslie is played by ali sheedy um you know one of the sweethearts of the 1980s and they're dating ostensibly seriously. They live together, even. They have a fly, fly-ass studio apartment with a bar, which is amazing. And, and she's an artist, and she has her, like, painting area, and she's like, fuck it, I'm going to paint. And there's, like, a huge mural of, like, a rugby game. It's fucking legit for for the 80s. And it's a huge studio, like, the studio is the size of, you know, my house kind of thing. Alec really wants Leslie to marry him. And he's, he's, you know, overt, yeah, but maybe a little aggressive about it. So it gets a little complicated there because she doesn't necessarily want to commit to that just yet. And... I think the movie plays it like, oh, Leslie's like a bitch, right? But the thing is that the movie kind of knows where this is going. So it's really to set your expectation that, oh, Leslie's kind of a bitch. But we find out that Alec is actually a huge, huge dickbag and that he has been chronically cheating on her. And he's like, well, when she gets married, I'll stop cheating, you know? But like, ugh, I just want to fuck everything. And, and guys, if, you, if you're in a long, guys and girls, right? People, even. Non, non, non-binary humans or non-humans that actually understand my speech right now. Be you uh, dog, cat, 
Fox Other. When you're in a, a committed relationship for a long time, or even for not a long time, but for a good amount of time, and you get married, fucking nothing changes. If you live together and you get married, nothing changes. The name changes and you do some paperwork different. That's it. Right. So his lie to himself, Alex, uh, Alec, Alec lying to himself about not cheating on Leslie once they get married is a fucking flat out, flat out lie. And I know this because I know that nothing changes. I don't know this because I cheated. I'm not, that's not my look, but I know this because nothing changed. And that's his premise. And I think that the filmmakers knew this too. So that's kind of the joke. That's like the, the secret hint that this guy's a fucking dickbag. As he's like, oh, I'll stop cheating when, I, when, when she marries me. You're, you're a fucking dick. Okay, a dick. Leslie, on the other hand, pretty cool. Artist. She doesn't have a lot going for her in terms of plot. She's kind of the the foil for the Alec-Kevin storylines. Um, but that's kind of okay, because in there, in, that, in the negative space of their storyline, she kind of finds her own. It's not great. But it's not the worst either. So she is is rejecting this objectification. I think she like kind of detects it on a very subliminal level. And there's an uh, apocalyptic party towards the end where Alec is just like everybody I like to make an announcement, Leslie's gonna do me the honor of being my wife, June, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, like, he didn't even ask her. He just, he set a date and and did all these things. And she's just like, the fuck? Right, pulls him out into the kitchen. He's like, can we talk about this? And um, he's like, sure, whatever. And then she's like, what about your extracurricular love life? And he's like, what? You know, what did Kevin tell you? So, you know, we kind of go back to the fact that he is bragging to Kevin and and I think I'll need to circle back and kind of reiterate, these people are really close friends. And I didn't, I may have known a, a group of friends like that, but I wasn't necessarily part of it. But that seems almost an illusion because of how people are. That seems almost an illusion because of how people are. What a fucking prophetic statement, Mark. Wow, holy shit. You are actually like really breaking, you know, new ground here. But just think that people have the the closer people are, the more likely they are to hurt each other. Having a a, a group of extremely close friends of, of that many of you know, different sexes and having that tension kind of in there and things like that, a lot could go on. Um but Alec is ultimately a bro's bro. And he brags to Kevin all the time, apparently, about his conquests, about how he 
fucked the lingerie sales girl in the dressing room with the three-sided mirror standing up. Alec is that type of fucking dickhead. And, you know, Leslie kind of throws him like a, a feeler. Like, what about your extracurriculars? He flips out and he goes and he fucking punches Kevin in his face. And he's like, what'd you tell her? And she's like, he didn't tell me anything. I fucking knew it. Or I guess I had a hunch, is what she says. Which is being generous. But that throws that relationship into disarray. Like, the relationship was in disarray for a while, and, and things were weird uh, between them, maybe, because of the, the tension of wanting to get married. But if she had those feelings or thoughts, they were now confirmed. So, Alex arc maybe doesn't exist um he he knows that he doesn't want to lose her but i don't know that he knows why and he proves time and time again that he's just a fucking bro douchebag you know and and he's gonna do the same shit over again that he just wants to kind of be in control and whatever the case is so i don't know that alec really gets anywhere but there are other characters. Leslie determines that she doesn't want to be owned. She doesn't want to be objectified. So there's a, a kind of a love triangle situation. She hooks up with Kevin, who Kevin has, you know, maybe secretly or not super secretly, but decently secretly been in love with her for a long time. And, and Kevin, in the... Extra features, uh, Andrew McCarthy is like, oh, Kevin can mask it, and he has to in this group. Of, of seven, he's kind of the one outcast, the one that doesn't have the couple. So he has to mask all these feelings well to kind of get by and survive and stuff like that. So Kevin has been masking this for a long time, and Leslie goes to crash at Kevin and Kirby's place because they live together because shit's fucking expensive in D.C., and they've just graduated, so... Yeah, a lot of people have roommates in D.C. So she goes to crash there, finds a stash of uh, some photos that he had of her because they've known each other for a long time. This this group has known each other for a long time. So ostensibly there would be collections of these things, but this was a curated collection. You know, they're, they're kind of drinking or whatever, and they hook up. And they hook up a lot. Like, Kevin is laying it down. Like, banging on all cil all cylinders, right? I'm sorry, I just saw somebody plug a plug into their face. I have I have uh, Ghost in the Shell on mute on the TV just to have something playing. But literally something I do not care about. Because this does not seem fun or entertaining just based on looking at it. So Kevin, you know, lays it down, and it seems good. It is definitely welcome, reciprocated, all the things. Um, Alec shows up at his place, because the thing is that Kevin has also kind of been following Alec around, like, like kind of worshipping a little bit, because Alec ostensibly has the the woman that he desires, right? So, you can't beat him, join him, almost is that philosophy, because Kevin has his own issues with confidence and self-image. He's a writer who has not been 
productive in the slightest and, and things like that. But he hooks up with uh, with Leslie. He's he's writing. He's published. So he's writing and he's published. But but Alec is just kind of proving himself over and over and over to be a complete dickbag. So we go through this thing with Kevin where it's like, oh, he's gay, right? Jules like calls him over, and he's like. She's like, Kevin, why have you never hit on me? And, and Jules is played by Demi Moore. This is maybe objectively a very beautiful woman. Uh, not even subjectively, like objectively. Demi Moore, very beautiful. So he's like, no, I just didn't want to. And he's kind of like a more sensitive type. He's a, he's a, a writer, he used to be a musician, things like that. And she thinks he's gay, and she's trying to introduce him to her neighbor, because her neighbor's so fabulous, Ron, is her neighbor. And he runs into uh, a hooker, and she's like, oh, I thought you were gay, a hooker outside of the bar. They all go to a bar. I should have, I buried the lead. They all go to a bar called St. Elmo's Bar. St. Elmo is made up. St. Elmo's Bar is a bar, ostensibly a Georgetown bar. And... These, this, this, think of like Norm and Cheers. Think of the the gang from How I Met Your Mother. How they always have that table, right? These people are those people. They have that table. They walk into St. Elmo's in the beginning of the movie, and they're like, "How did you let undergrads sit at our table?" Mind you, Kirby fucking works there. So if anybody's low on the socioeconomic totem pole, it, it, it's kind of him. Because he's literally bringing them drinks most of the time. But what, what, why did I get over? Oh, Kevin, 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 Ryder, Kevin. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot. It is, it is past midnight. I forgot. I'm sorry. But Kevin goes through this thing where Jimmy thinks he's gay, but we, we find out that he, he talks to the prostitute. That's right. He talks to the, the hooker outside of St. Elmo's, and he confesses to her. He's like, what if you're in love with somebody from afar? I was like, is, a, is it he or she? And he's like, it's a secret. Right? But we know it's Leslie, or, or we don't know, but we have inklings. But eventually we find out for sure. So they go through that, but she, he wants to move in with her like right away. And she's like, don't confuse sex with, don't confuse sex with love. And it's one of those things where this is not the path that we saw this going. This is not the course that we saw this taking. And Ultimately, it's really about Leslie not being owned and about Kevin and Alex's different routes to owning her, which is really interesting because we have fucking Kirby. Kirby, your enthusiasm, because Kirby is a fucking grade A prime ass 
number one bullshit boosted toxic stalker. Motherfucker is a stalker. He does stalk Andy McDowell, which is cool. Andy McDowell, fantastic actor. She plays a, a woman named Dale Bieberman. Dale, like over Glen and, and River and Dale. Um, not Dale, like uh, King of the Hill, which is kind of what I thought. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a dude's name. Um, but once I, I kind of looked it up, it's a, it's a misspelling of a Gaelic name for like a field. So her name could ostensibly be Meadow, right? And that's definitely a woman's name. Unless you're Meadowlark Lemon. So I take that back. But it, it, it's a Gaelic name and it's a thing. Dale. And it's going to be hard to... Just trust me on it. Dale. Dale's played by Andy McDowell. She's a doctor. And apparently Kirby had gone to a movie with her. A bunch of years ago, uh, she was a junior while I was a freshman. Like, he goes through this whole thing when he sees her at the hospital after the car crash. And he stalks her. Straight up stalks her. Follows her. Does, does everything to her. He crashes a party. He crashes a party and he drops, like, one of the greatest lines and by greatest, I mean also creepiest. He is soaking wet from observing her from outside the party. He is just drenched. And he walks into the party, and it's a, it's a first-person view. It's almost like watching the video for, for the prodigies smack my bitch up. But weird, because everybody's, like, horrified. And he finally finds her, and you're like, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna fucking kill her now. And she's like, Kirby, how are you? And he says, I'm obsessed. Thank you very much. And it's like, is it her fault? Or was it thank you for asking? What? It, it's it's very confusing. And, and Kirby just decides. He's like, that's going to be my girl, right? So it's his own path to ownership of women essentially that ultimately does not work out for him but the weird thing is that he gets the uh leitmotifs of the the song of the movie which is uh by john parr and it's called man in motion parentheses saint Elmo's fire and if i recall correctly i'm not looking this up but if i recall correctly that was actually not written for the album but kind of retro uh not not written for the movie but kind of retrofitted to get in there and it's a ballin song so if you've never listened to Man in Motion by John Parr, parentheses, St. Elmo's Fire, it's pretty hype. It's pretty motivational. You know, you could see it like Kirby psyching himself up, listening to it, like, I'm going to stalk her, I'm going to stalk her, get her, I'm going to follow her to yoga and everything. Um, but uh, Dale responds to his stalking with the most immense grace and patience. And it's almost one of those things where Either it's happened to her before, because, I mean, she's Andy McDowell. She kind of fly. It's happened to her before, or maybe she just um, preternaturally understands what's happening. Like, she just has that empathy, because there's there's a point in time where uh, 
Kirby actually goes into her house with her. She takes him to her house, and she's like, hey, Kirby, I'm not, you know, I think it's it's after this uh, obsessed. Thank you very much. And, you know, she's like, Kirby, I'm not all that's cracked up to be. I'm a doctor, sure, but, you know, I'm a slob. My roommate hates me. Her roommate walks in, and she's like, yeah, I hate you. And stuff like that, like, you're seeing that she's ultimately not a trophy or a, an ideal. She is a human with flaws. And Kirby just completely misreads that situation. He's like, I get it. It's about money. I'm going to go make money. And he does the dumbest shit. So Kirby is kind of like, I guess, representing some type of romantic comedy ideal where he has to relentlessly and doggedly pursue his love interests. And that doesn't work out for him either. He's not put in jail. He's not necessarily penalized for it. Which is interesting because ostensibly he should have been because he then stalks her. He, he physically threatens a couple people including the roommate, and then uh, follows her up to her ski cabin type deal where her boyfriend is at, and he also uh, kind of addresses this very, very, very kindly. Oh, God, this, this movie is fucking boosted. They respond to him kindly. Almost as if he was mentally ill and they were trying to be caregivers. Which is scary because you can't just do that in any position. You don't know what, what somebody might be capable of. Um, you have to feel that out and make that judgment for yourself. But Kirby kind of comes away. Kirby has like a... I I don't know that he has a full arc per se, but his arc getting there is at least that he can be confident, but he be, he gains that confidence by kind of a little bit forcing himself on her in a kiss, but then she like likes it. While the boyfriend was inside getting a thing. And it's a little confusing now that I think about it. I have fucking copious notes that I'm actually not even looking at right now. Um, the ceiling fan is on, so it, it makes it uh, makes it a little more difficult to get through the notebook here. But yeah, I don't, I don't actually know that Kirby changes too too much. I think he, ultimately he's just like, well, Dale's not for me. I guess I better go stock the next big thing, or maybe not stock the next big thing. I think that if he uh, represents the, the trope of romance and romantic comedies and romantic movies that we have seen up until then, he needs to not behave how he behaves. He needs to not say anything and be outside the window with a boombox. You need to just fucking chill and, and respect, you know, women's wishes, right? People's wishes in general. Um, but that's kind of the same thing with the Ali Sheedy storyline, right? The, the the one thing that Kirby does get, actually, out of uh, 
out of his whole exploration of of money and status and things like that is that he's no longer working in the bar and he's going to he's going to so he was studying to to go to law school so he's going to work in a lawyer's office as a paralegal which is so the one thing that Kirby gets from this exploration of money and power and status and things like that is that he's going to end up going to law school and he has found his direction I don't know that on the the love front he's any better at all but at least on his life front he's not working in a bar just trying to get drinks for his friends or whatever. So that's Kirby. Jules. Jules is a fucking train wreck. Jules is ostensibly a rich girl who who was never loved by her father. Uh, her parents either divorced or maybe she was a widower, but she's throughout the movie going through the process where she has a stepmother who she did not get along with it in the slightest who is who is dying and and Jules is listed as her next of kin Jules is listed as her next of kin her father is in South Africa with a new wife who is only slightly older than his daughter and it's really a weird scene so Jules is taking this really hard and to cover for all of this emotional baggage where her stepmother's in a coma and she's been talking to her and be like, why does my dad hate me and things like that? She is routinely drinking, routinely on drugs and just out of fucking control. There's one point where she calls Alec from a room full of, uh, I guess, Saudi rich people, Saudi royalty, maybe. And she's like, I heard the, the word for gangbang in Saudi, and it's like, no, it isn't. You know, there's some Saudis here that they were having fun, and they had coke and stuff like that, and she was in the room. And Alec has to go rescue her, and he's like, this is kind of of your own making. But, I mean, anyway, it's complicated, but uh, drugs and her lifestyle, she, you know, once again has the, the really nice apartment, the, you know, the Jeep, which Jeeps were... Four by fours were really cool, I guess, at the time, right? Back to the Future also came out around that time. He's Toyota four by four is the object of his desire. Him being Marty McFly in Back to the Future. So it's kind of like a cool vibe. It's a, it's a big mood, if you will, of the time. And really, ultimately, what she's trying to do is she's trying to trade money for affection or validation, and it's not working. She is way over her head in terms of, of credit debt, and just way, way over her head. And it's it's really sad. It's really sad. But she can't see the spiral that she's in. Her friends do, and her friends try to talk, talk her out of it. Um, her friends do and her friends try to talk her out of it Leslie and Wendy kind of organize an intervention and she's like no I'm fine but at that point she's not even eating like she's coked up all the time she starts having an affair with her boss she is 
two months advanced on her salary. She is going circling the drain at this point, man. She is just trying to hit the bottom. And eventually she does. All her stuff gets repossessed. You know, she locks herself in her apartment and, you know, the, the group having been shattered by various issues kind of comes together to break in and help her. And then Billy has a wonderful talk where he's like, Hey, this is all fake. Right. That's his, that's his thesis. This is all fake. This is all say St. Elmo's fire. Sailors would, would guide themselves by this fake fire. By this fake light. So. Yeah, I haven't even gotten to Billy yet. I mean, it was good in that it worked in the movie, but I wasn't in love with his, his pep talk. But he is one to talk. Because that guy is a fucking character. Yeah, Wendy. Wendy comes from an affluent family. And she is kind of living in the shadow of her father and of the money. And things like that. And, and she's trying to legitimately do good and be a social worker and things like that, you know? Things that nobody, I guess, would fault somebody else for doing. So she's doing that, and she really, she's maybe the, the plainer of the women of the group. Um, because Ali Sheedy and Demi Moore are iconic. Maybe is is the word for the era. Uh, Demi Moore, I guess, kind of came into her own a little more in the in the nineties, uh, especially with her marriage to Bruce Willis. But Ali Sheedy was already well established as being, uh, you know, major like crush material at the time. So. Wendy is the, the the plainer one of the group, and she hasn't had that success, per se. She's not found an Alec, or she doesn't have various rich boyfriends, or whatever the case is. Uh, but she herself is affluent, uh, her family is. And they, you know, provide her with stuff. And when we come into the car crash, uh, it's actually her car that's been crashed. And Rob Lowe's character, Billy, was driving it and driving it drunk. And she is footing the bill. She is footing the bill for everything. And there are, are jokes being made and everybody's like, hey, you're okay, or whatever. Rob Lowe's super drunk, flirting with a, flirting with an EMT, you know, premarital sax, because he has a saxophone, because he plays the saxophone. So Rob Lowe legitimately learned to play the saxophone for this movie, which is cool. And he's essentially like going in for drunk driving, but she's she's trying to cover for him. Everybody's trying to cover for him. Kirby's trying to lawyer it up, even though he's not a lawyer just yet. But it's like, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's that really bad relationship, but you're you're in it, and you can't see how Billy just kind of takes advantage of of everybody and he never gives back and it comes to a point where it seems like they might have a thing he's at her house he's at Wendy's house parents house I should say 
meeting their parents, and he goes up to the roof, and everybody's freaking out. She talks him down. Not that he was trying to commit suicide. He was just on the roof drunk, right? But, you know, the her parents, her, her family is a little more conservative isn't the word I want to use. Maybe old school is. Um, and they're always on the roof. He's going to jump, and it's a big debacle, a big ordeal. And that's not the case, but he is reckless because Billy himself is already married and has a child, and he is not capable of doing either. And he gets to the point where he says that it's it's actually worse for it's worse for the man who knocks up a guy because then his life is over and blah blah. Mind you, this is after his wife just walked into the club where he was playing saxophone to the bar actually to St. Elmo's where he was playing saxophone with another guy just in front of his face. Mind you, he's had untold amounts of sex. Like, the guy has eight types of HPV at this point. And it's kind of obnoxious because he's legitimately a bad person, but it takes him a long time to realize that. But the resolution is, well... You know, he's legitimately a bad person, and it takes him a long time to realize that, but the resolution is, well, I guess I'll just go away. You're going to remarry, so you don't need me for any kind of financial stability, and my daughter is just better off without me, which is sad. I mean, I can't objectively know this. I don't know all futures, but it's sad for for a girl to grow up never knowing her real father or whatever and it takes him a while to get to that he's in denial quite a bit he's like I'll change and then he can't change and he confesses to Wendy he's like it's hard not being in school when he's on that roof like it's hard not having that structure but, you know, that's a phenomenon that a lot of people can experience. I know I experienced it when I graduated. I didn't know. I don't know what to do. At all. It was terrifying. I figured it out, obviously. Or maybe not obviously. But I'm definitely doing something at this point. But we all get that. Everybody gets that when they graduate. You never know what's what's next for you. But he is so far that he tries to like go back and get a job on campus at work at the frat. And it's like, wow, man. Like, you're really messed up. You know, he also... He really treats Wendy poorly after she's helped him so much. And a lot of it's about sex. You know, Wendy... uh Wendy was a virgin. She had dated, but she didn't really like any of the guys that she had dated. Like I said, she was the plainer one. She's also Jewish, so she's dated a bunch of uh, maybe like nerdier Jewish guys, right, that do business with her father, or their fathers do business with her father type deal. It's just, it's really weird how they get together, but they get together like really towards the end. And it's a really nice, tender, welcomed, and, and, and giving 
event, but that's her that's her virginity, and he just kind of like straight up asks for a, a present. He's like, I'll pay you back, and he's like working towards paying her back, and he's like, you know, I hope that I haven't taken advantage of our friendship so much that I couldn't ask for a favor or a present before leaving. And it's just, it felt weird. It felt weird. Um, I mean, it was less weird after everyone had kind of come back together to help Jules. Uh, this is also around the time that... No, I think it's after he leaves. After he leaves, he goes. He leaves to New York pretty much right then, thereafter. Uh, having that wonderful time with Wendy. But... They, the group, gets together and they, as a group, have matured. And they're seeing this now, and it's it's illustrated quite nicely through the use of the bar as a location for everything, right? As the lubricant for the plot, plot lubricant. They're outside the bar, and it's nighttime, and people are like oh, you want to go in and get a drink? And people are like, no, I have to go to work. Uh, Jules is like, oh, I have to go find a job tomorrow because she had actually been fired weeks ago and is way behind on rent and everything, and she just needs to figure it out. And they say, well... And then they kind of sort out, and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll get together for, for brunch. We'll get together for brunch on Sunday. And that's kind of how that works out, a lot of people make fun of millennials for brunch. Um, I don't like the term millennial because I don't like the term, the, the connotation that it brings. Um, but I do like brunch because I like eating breakfast and I don't like waking up early. So brunch is, is pretty hyped. The only thing is brunch is really packed. So I'm like, fuck it, I'll wake up early. Because... I hate waiting in line. And I hate waiting to, like, be seated. That's my nightmare. If I can just get some coffee, I can sit and wait for food and, and stuff like that. That's fine. But I hate just waiting outside a restaurant for, for seating. So I'll wake up early for that. But Saturdays and Sunday mornings are realistically the times that you can meet with adults. I have, I have a child. We've had to adjust our schedule. Not only that, but we can't stay out late because, you know, we have to wake up early every morning and, and get ready for work and do our work stuff. So, seeing that the group has now acknowledged brunch as opposed to staying out all night on a random fucking bender, like, ah, margaritas or pina coladas or whatever the fuck they drink. Um... I think they drink beer primarily, but there was a, in Alec and Leslie's apartment, there's a, a scene where Jules comes over and, and they kind of, you know, give the intimation that, that Jules is really, you know, needy of emotional support. And they're like, oh, Jules, they roll their eyes at each other and stuff like that. Where Jules and Leslie are drinking warm, absolute vodka straight up. And that is just so... So fucking disgusting to me. Because I do not like the taste of vodka. I don't. 
or non-taste of it, if you will. I don't like, I don't, I don't enjoy the consumption of vodka. So, just watching them drink warm, absolute vodka, I'm convinced it was just water, and it was for the cameras, and absolute threw them a little bit of money for product placement. I think primarily they drink beer, but it's like fucking lagers. You know, people don't really go big in movies. You expect beer to be golden-colored. But St. Elmo's Fire did an interesting job in that it subverted the expectation that everyone's life ends up rosy. It doesn't. Billy goes to New York with not a fucking penny. Just the saxophone. He's like, well, I'm going to figure it out. Leaves his daughter completely behind in the D.C. metro area. Wendy is... She has her independence. But she had admitted that she had feelings for Billy, and he's gone. But she's going to live her life on her own terms. She is becoming independent from her family. Not out of spite of her family, but more out of pride for herself. She needs to feel proud of it, proud of herself. And I think that's fair. Alec is a piece of shit. He is an absolute garbage human, and he knows that he still wants Leslie back. But I don't think he's changed one fucking iota. Meanwhile, Kevin is maybe not so a piece of shit, but he still has this, you know, kind of weird patriarchy thing going on. Oh, I'm scratching the back of my head. Oh, God. It burns. He still has this weird fucking patriarchy thing going on where he wants to own Leslie in his own way, and that's not okay either. So she is like, well, I'm going to be alone for a while. And that was cool. That was nice because she's not the fucking MacGuffin. You know, she doesn't have to move the plot forward. They need to figure out their own shit. Um, I mean, I thought Kevin was pretty all right, but he was really, uh, he had a lot of self-image problems that kind of started to finally lift once he found he had a good relationship. So we don't really see the arc of whether or not he learned from that or, or what. We just see a little bit of of a product of that, a tiny bit. But it's it's my assumption that hopefully he's gotten his shit together. Uh, you know, Billy tells Alec right before he leaves, don't lose her, but Alec is just such garbage at this point that, I mean, the fact that it would be up in the air is insane. Jules has a breakdown when they repossess all her shit, and she opens up all the windows to her apartment, and she's just sitting in her apartment, basically attempting to freeze to death. And the group all gets together, and they put aside all the issues, all the differences. And they, they, they help her. And ultimately, what she needed was a friend. There was a scene where she was with Billy, and her default with men always is like a sex angle. That's how she feels that she is worth to men. 
and he's like he totally feeds into that but she's like hey you know come down a second like i want to talk and he kind of he forces himself on her a little bit it's not quite a rape but it's you know it's in there it's in the ballpark he doesn't end up doing anything to her but you know he steals her keys you know it's her car steals her keys puts them down his pants and intimates or oral sex and and things like that and it's not a good feeling to watch and this was many years ago so the fact that things like this still happen is is kind of interesting to me but you know basically she lays it down to him she's like i needed a friend right now and he's just a garbage piece of shit human being but that's what she needed she had problems opening up to everybody else but i think she saw something in billy billy that reflected something in her and she thought that she could connect to that and billy was not like conducive to that at all so there was that that's uh i think that's everybody right no kirby no kirby's just a fucking freak decided to go to law school maybe stalk some other woman that one wasn't a good one but i mean honestly this movie i'm sure was trimmed for time uh it's not short i don't have the running time in front of me but i want to say it's like over the two hour range it is complicated there are the the mechanism of the movie is almost like the mechanism of memory where events kind of happen in clusters uh so for example one of the big events or one of the the more major event clusters is the Halloween party where things happen around the Halloween party at St. Elmo's right and this is how we as humans kind of look back on our our young adulthoods and, and think about things so it was really created with that in mind in that there is a passage of time but it is not definite almost ethereal right nobody really changes in how they look it's that that 22 again you know when i was 22 man everybody looked the same and we were all immortal and we would never die but it's different now and watching saint elmo's fire with this hindsight to my life to apply to their lives it's like wow you know, this was a, a very insightful movie in its own ways. Could it have done better? Yeah, probably. But nobody's perfect. You know, and I've also had 33 years of essentially experience to apply to the examination of this movie. So it's one of those things where this is a, a pretty serious movie. And yeah, there are some comedic parts, but it's interesting to see these seven actors uh, who are kind of major actors in their respective times. Interesting to see these seven actors not playing heroes. Not necessarily playing villains either. I don't know that anyone's necessarily a hero or a villain in this one. They are just less troubled or more troubled 
And I think that that is a very mature approach as well. Because people are complicated, and people are not always heroes or villains. And I think that when we narrow our narratives down to heroes and villains is when, interestingly, biased things can happen. So, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to call it a night, because it is late as hell, and I've just been sitting on my bed recording this podcast. I don't know how the audio is going to turn out. I hope it turns out fine, because I'm not going to re-record it. Oh. Uh, last sip of that Coke Zero. And yes, that is a Scott Pilgrim reference. Because they're in Canada. And, uh, oof, my neck is stiff. But yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call it. That, uh, that was St. Elmo's Fire. That is an examination of St. Elmo's Fire. I am Marty, IT Guy Dad, and generally bad movie, music, movie nerd, not music, movie nerd. I'm a generally bad movie nerd. And this has been Mark's movie collection. You can tweet at me at CoolMarkD, Cool with a C, and Mark with a K. Let me know what you thought of St. Almost Fire. If I do find it streaming, I will add that into the show note links kind of deal. Um, I know I haven't been too great on that, but I don't really have any sources for a lot of these. I just kind of watch the movie and feel it out. I did check out the featurette. Featurette was nice. There were some good quotes in there. Uh, I think everybody goes through and kind of talks about how they feel about the movie. And I'll I'll actually bring that in here. Joel Schumacher says uh, the movie's about about position. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> my writing, take my writing, please. Joel Schumacher says it's about passion, where everything is in life and death. Judd Nelson uh, says that it's uh. It's about what you do when you don't know what this, what surrounds you just yet. And that, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, these, these characters don't necessarily know what the greater world is like. They are 22 years old. Now, mind you, these actors had been playing high school students up until just this movie. So it's weird to try to place them outside of that, especially so close to that age. But it's also weird to... 22 is a weird age. Nobody is ever 22 in a movie. They're usually 25 in a movie. They're out of college and kind of established. Or something else. But 22 is a weird age. So that's an interesting choice. Um, yeah, and my final note, or second to final note, the narrator of the featurette, it's like, uh, these characters are moving forward in their lives by the light of St. Elmo's fire. And Rob Lowe explains to uh, Demi Moore's character, Billy explains to Jules how St. Elmo's fire is essentially a hallucination and that we are attributing these values arbitrarily almost in our lives where when you're 22, your you know, significant other leaving you can be life or death 
or feels like it, I should say. Maybe the, your world is a little bit smaller or whatever the case is, uh, but it can feel like it. So I think that's what that means. But my final note is actually Rob Lowe actually learned to play the saxophone. And he rocks out a fucking solo in this movie, boy. I will tell you what. I will tell you what. It's pretty alright. So. This has been St. Almost Fire. I'm gonna not drop this mic. But I'm gonna sign out. See you for the next movie, which will probably be Brick. Now that I think about it. Yeah, I'll, I, I gotta figure it out, man. My life is, is weird right now. But I'll, I'll see you then. Bye. Okay, so I think you've noticed by now that the episode didn't quite end yet. And the reason for that, I will explain, is that I couldn't leave well, well enough alone. And I checked out some reviews for this movie, just out of curiosity. Out of Vanity, maybe. And it, I was genuinely shocked. I was genuinely shocked that this movie has a 45 on, or 44 on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 68 from audience, which I would have expected. Um, but critics are calling it, uh, Paul Atanasio calls it, these aren't characters, they're character hooks. Um, Sheila Benson, all speed and stylishness without a bit of emotional resonance beneath. I super strongly disagree on that one. Um, Variety staff, uh, Variety said, St. Amos Fire is all about a group of recent college graduates in Washington, D.C., ostensibly, sick, who were always the best of friends but are now drifting apart as real life approaches discovering various reasons why they are all so individually obnoxious. I haven't read the full reviews for, for any of these, but I think it's a a really interesting like if I had to if I had to choose, right, I would say that a lot of these people are just fucking salty um about how they get called out, right? Um Da, 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 da. The the film was edited so skittishly that the actors are barely able to complete complete their sentences, let alone their thoughts. That's probably just as well by Janet Maisland from the New York Times. I strongly disagree, and that was a review in two thousand three, which is insane to me because movie pacing and editing has changed so much. The movie is not edited skittishly at all, in my opinion. Um. A 2017 TV Guide review, this glib, insubstantial soap opera is emblematic of Hollywood in the mid-1980s. I disagree with that one. I think that this movie was the antithesis of Hollywood in the mid-1980s, where they were still making coming-of-age, you know, bullshit, improbable, license-to-drive Weekend at Berries, uh, Weekend at Bernie's-type fucking movies, Revenge of the Nerds, things like that. Um... It just it doesn't doesn't make sense to me these these reviews. I think there's something going on. There's a review from James Plath of Movie Metropolis in 2009 that says even teens might have a hard time identifying with the level of melodrama we get here. Teens wouldn't even fucking remotely get this because they still live with mom and dad, 
and they still have their own teen bullshit going on, right? I think you you have to be able to strongly empathize and kind of put yourself in that in that place. And I don't think I'm like the world's greatest empath or anything, but when I'm involved in a movie, when I'm engaged by a movie and watching a movie, I'm inside the movie at that point. So, I mean, a lot of people are calling this like like not very interesting or anything, but for me, somehow I have, I have a draw here because this is um, the, the group of friends from college is a little bit of a cliche that we've seen play out. Um, the one that kind of comes to my head uh, that was wildly popular at the time was I don't know what the hell that beep was. Was um, how I met your mother. What the what the fuck was that beep? Hold on, hold on a second. That was the weirdest beep I've ever heard. So the one that comes to mind was how I met your mother. And that one, Jesus, every device right now is trying to ask for my attention. I do not want. Okay, so the one that comes to mind was How I Met Your Mother, and that is like a very idyllic look at that relationship, whereas there's Friends from College on Netflix, also with Kobe Smulders, hilariously enough, which is more of a breakfast club type of view, but just, you know, 10 years in, or, or whatever the case is. And these groups do fall apart, and there is melodrama, and there is all this. But that's life, and when you are, are just getting out of college or, or in college and kind of getting towards the end of it, this is your life. This is all you see. So not being able to put yourself there, not being able to understand that, I think will garner that, that criticism. Um, being offended that you're supposed to care that you know somebody's cheating on his girlfriend from college that he wants to marry or whatever, you know that could be a personal kind of deflection um, from either side of that equation. There could be a lot going on there. Um, but if you go and, and you do check out those reviews, I think that you should take them with a grain of salt. I think that they are blown out of proportion for the most part. I enjoyed the, the movie. I thought it was snappy. Not quite Gilmore Girls, which is super snappy or um, anything like that. But snappy snappy for the time a lot of the movies back then were slow and they sat on takes and and things like that this one they they, they move it along they have a lot of story to get through they have a lot of characters a lot of things happen in the movie there's a lot of interactions every scene kind of makes a progress in a story everybody's changed a little bit every scene it's a lot i know this is coming from the filmmaker joel schumacher who eventually brings us the wonderful Batman and Robin, but, you know, grain of salt. Grain of salt. But once again, thank you for listening. Uh, tweet at me, at CoolMarkD, cool to see Mark with a K. I would actually love to hear what you thought of this movie, because I didn't know that it was going to be so polarizing. I genuinely like it. I genuinely like it. This is maybe one of my more liked movies of the time. Because it is different from the bullshit high school comedies and, and things like that. Or not bullshit. I, I don't want to minimize that. You know, um, 
but maybe the more melodramatic, less impactful high school comedies. I'll just call them bullshit comedies. Kids in high school, fucking goddamn kids in high school. Always in high school, always being kids in high school. Get off my lawn. No, um, but I'm just saying there's a very uh, standard teen comedy kind of formula. License to Drive, uh, Weird Science, that kind of thing. This this is not that. This is not uh, Real Genius or anything like that. This is a very different movie that I think maybe people wanted d- didn't want to accept a because of the casting and b because of the time and c maybe what it reflects what they identify with. So take it with a grain of salt. Check it out. I really liked it. See ya.